0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarin from Zuma Radio, AM 740.
1: And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer. And yes, we are live streaming this radio program on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. That's it. You can watch the radio program on the, uh, the live stream YouTube channel, Strange Planet. You can see me in my home studio here in Thornhill, north of Toronto, where it is great to be home after a month away in Greece and I was bouncing back and forth between Kalamata and Athens. And uh, here I am uh, now in quarantine for the next 14 days. Well, I've done five days of quarantine. So another five, uh, another nine days left to go. Uh, So last month we had two great guest hosts, Ali Siadatan and Don Jeffries. I want to thank them both again. I think that I I thought they did a terrific job. And uh, then last week, I pre-recorded the show when I was in Greece, but I'm back live tonight, live radio as God intended it. Uh, David S. Brody is an attorney-turned-bestselling author. He writes terrific books, fictionalized accounts that examine pre-Columbian America, and his books are really suspense thrillers. I think David has written now about 16 novels He's just, in the last two weeks, published his latest, Sheba's Revenge, uh, which deals with, among other things, the legend of buried treasure at Canada's fabled Oak Island. And David is standing by to discuss here in just a moment, in the second hour, Charlie Robinson is a writer, humorist, social critic, podcaster. He'll be with us. Charlie has a relatively new book out called Hypocrisy, and you have to see the spelling of it. It's the 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 actual spelling is hippo, h y p o, crazy, c r a z y. So it's hypocrazy, hypocrazy, surviving in a world of cultural double standards. And he'll discuss uh, the difficulty of navigating the current cultural climate due to. Constantly shifting moral values, cultural double standards, a dangerous consolidation in the business community, and the whole strange, woke agenda. All right. Are you uh, all ready to get into some Oak Island? Let's do it. David S. Brody is an eight-time Amazon best-selling fiction writer and the author of 16 novels. Actually, I think this bio might be a little outdated. I think David is more like 10 time Amazon bestseller. We'll find out in a moment. His uh, his children call him a rock nerd, a rock nerd, because of the time he spends studying ancient stone structures, which he believes evidence exploration of um, America prior to Columbus. A graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School, David has served as a director of the New England Antiquities Research Association. He's an avid researcher in the subject, again, of pre-Columbus exploration of America. He's frequently appeared as a guest expert on documentaries, airing on the History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery. He's a longtime resident of Westford, Massachusetts, and a native of Laconia, New Hampshire. And he currently resides in Newburyport, Massachusetts, with his wife, sculptor, Kimberly Scott. David S. Brody, welcome. How are you?
2: Richard, thank you. It's great to be with
1: you again. Likewise, likewise. So uh, I, I mentioned eight-time Amazon best-selling, but I think that's outdated. Is it like ten now or a dozen times you've topped the Amazon <laughs> it, bestselling
2: list? It is list? ten. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a fun run, these, these, these books. This whole idea, I think, of uh, the history of America not really being told has really captured people's imaginations. And, and they're fun, and so people tend to read them, and, uh, and I'm appreciative of that.
1: And uh, you, you, you have sort of stayed away, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you've sort of hinted at uh, Oak Island in previous books, maybe a certain artifact right. found there as maybe uh, examples of, you know, the fact that the Romans were around uh, pre, you know, obviously pre-Columbus. But this is the first time you sort of have have put more of a focus on Oak Island, if I'm not mistaken, right?
2: Yes, that's a very astute observation. I've been, I have stayed away from it, um, mostly because so many other people are talking about it, and writing about it, and I didn't at the time really think I had anything original to say. And then I started digging down a little bit, and I, I, I don't know if you, if you know of an author by the name of Zena Halpern, who passed away a few years ago, and she's been a frequent guest on the Curse of Oak Island show. Uh, I was very close with her, and I ended up with a lot of her notes. And she had written a book very quickly uh, before she passed on, and was planning on doing a sequel. And from those notes and from other things I found, I, I finally sort of stumbled upon some information about Oak Island that I thought was worthy of writing about. And so, so I, like everyone else, took the dive into Oak Island. And you know, my my wife said, "Why'd you finally do it?" And I actually quoted to her the, a great quote I had read, which was that um you know all old men dream of finding the little child within who still believes in buried treasure <laughs> that's that's sort of why we all are so interested in oak island i think we all love that the the romance of the buried treasure and i'm the same i just like i just can't get enough of it i you know i sit there once a week and i watch it and i don't really ever find anything and yet i turn it on again a week later and i'm just fascinated by it like so many other people are
1: right right And uh, just tell us a little bit about the the main protagonist in this series of books, uh, Cam. And he's been – how many books has Cam been sort of featured in? This is his 13th. His 13th. And he's kind of a middle-aged archaeologist, investigator. But this – there's something new in his life. He's recently widowed in this book.
2: Right, so the widowing happened a couple books earlier, and, uh. and boy, did I get some uh, some nasty you know fan mail from from ex, from ex fans who were upset. Um, he had been with um, Amanda for ten books, and you know it was just one of those things. You know, if, if you have people running around getting shot at all the time, at some point it just doesn't seem realistic if if, if they always survive. It's like the old Batman series. You know, Batman and Robin always survive, but you know, we were little kids back then, so so i decided to you know to to have the tragedy and then he moved on and and he's now with a uh, sort of interesting exotic mossad agent and and that has allowed me to tie in some other geopolitical subplots into the stories which is what i did with this it's oak island but it also ties into some some turmoil in the middle east but yeah so he's sort of just recovering and starting to dip his
1: toe into into dating again right now so in the in the book uh Cam is approached by a TV producer who who uh wants to explore uh Oak Island yet again and has a new way uh sort of a new technology he wants to employ I guess it hasn't been tr- tried before and it's based on the Boston Big Dig project <laughs> right so um because you know they they really have, aside from finding a few artifacts here and there they've never ever no one has ever be, been able to uh to uncover uh, the legendary gold that's supposedly at the bottom of the money pit, but this this idea that this TV producer comes up with, and he wants Cam to basically, before he goes and spends ten million dollars to perform this big dig on Oak Island, he wants to confirm that there is Templar treasure there. Right. But he doesn't this want, idea he doesn't that
2: want to this, contribute to the money pit, he doesn't want to be the next guy to throw his money down the pit.
1: Right, so, but this idea that this TV producer comes uh, uh, to cam with um, based on the Boston Big Dig, I mean, is that is there some validity to that? is this would this be a new way of excavating? I mean, it would just excavate the entire island right
2: right, so it's called, it's called the slurry wall excavation, and you wouldn't even need the whole island, but you could basically take um, let me go back so what slurry wall construction is is essentially you you dig a big pit. And you, and you insert um, a slurry for, uh, uh, formula of, of, of material, and they're partially liquid and partially solid, and you basically freeze it. And the, those frozen walls then prevent this pit from collapsing on itself, because one of the problems with the Oak Island money pit is that there's a lot of water in there, there's a lot of voids, because so many people have dug there so often, and you can't really dig too why the diameter of a of a of a hole because it will just collapse on itself but this this is a technique that was used as you mentioned when they did the the big dig uh, um, depressing of the central artery in Boston and they were they were dealing with um wet soil conditions and this is what they came up with and so this is not you know, unique to my... Uh, I'm not an engineer. I didn't come up with this. So other people suggested doing it up there at, at Oak Island. The problem is it's very expensive. It's an expensive technique. Um, and, and, and so the producer in, in my book basically says, I don't want to drop $10 million into this. unless I'm fairly certain that we think the Templars... We're here with their treasure, otherwise it's not worth it. And so he retains Cameron, Cameron Thorne, and says, look, you're the Templar expert, you've got to tell me if this is a good bet. You know, I, can't, I can't ask for 100% insurances, I understand that, but we're the Templars here, and if so, is it possible that they left their treasures here from King Solomon's Templar or otherwise before I drop all this money into this thing? And so that's, that's sort of the trigger to get the book going. He, he retains Cameron to go up there and give his best guess as to, as to what's going on in the island.
1: Right, and so that leads us to, and this is this is pretty controversial too. Uh, but before we get into the whole Middle East thing, uh, in, in terms of Solomon, let's let's talk a little bit about Sheba, which is uh, the namesake of the you know the title of the book, Sheba's Revenge, right. Queen Sheba from Ethiopia. Uh, who was she?
2: So this is I've always been fascinated by the story because you know every once in a while you'll hear one of your usually your aunt or your grandmother say to somebody in the family, well, who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba? And I'll say, who, who is the Queen of Sheba? Well, so the story that you get, and it's written in the Old Testament, basically she lived at the same time as King Solomon, and as uh, King Solomon was very powerful in the Middle East, of course, and she was um, also powerful in her own right in Ethiopia. She was described as uh, bold, beautiful, and, and brilliant, uh, but she like other leaders, traveled to Jerusalem to pay homage to King Solomon, to meet him, to, to, to gain from his wisdom, to you know, diplomacy, you would call it. Um, but part of um, the, the culture in her country, in Ethiopia, was that she needed to remain a virgin while she ruled. And so she said to Solomon, who, who was attracted to her, you know, you have to, you have to promise not to, uh, to violate my chastity. And he said, that's fine, I agree to that. Um, but he also wanted to. <laughs> so, so what he did, he basically tricked her. He said, I will, I will agree not to, to, to come to your bed if you agree not to steal anything from my palace. And she said, well, of course, I'm not planning on stealing anything. What he did is he served her the night before she left a big banquet in her honor, and he made sure all the food was very salty and spicy. So she woke up in the middle of the night and reached for a water jug, which said property of King Solomon on it. And in the darkness, didn't realize that and, and, and gulped from the water jug. And Solomon, waiting in the shadows, said, Aha, you violated your oath to me, so I can violate my oath to you. And so different versions of this story are told. So either he seduced her trickled, you know, with a trick, or he date-raped her, basically. You know, he took her against her will. Either way, what ended up happening was um, she became pregnant, and she had a son named Menelik. And about 20 years later, Menelik came of age and and decided to return to Jerusalem to visit his father. And Solomon, to his credit, welcomed Menelik with open arms and actually asked him if he would stay and rule by his side. And Menelik said, thank you, Dad, but no, I I need to get back to Ethiopia and rule with Mom. I'm I'm the the heir to that throne. And Solomon said, great, I understand. What I'm going to do for you is I'm going to send with you the sons of my best cabinet members, my best ministers, so they can advise you just as their fathers have advised me. And Menelik thought that was great, but the sons were not too happy about it. They liked their life in Jerusalem and did not want to go to the backwaters of Ethiopia. And so they conspired to do, uh, to steal the Ark of the Covenant, basically saying, if we have to leave, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. And so they left with Menelik with the Ark of the Covenant. And when Solomon learned of this theft, he gave chase. And the story, uh, that story is not told in detail as much in the Old Testament, but there is an Ethiopian uh, historical source called the Kebran the Goss, which right. goes into great detail of how uh, this chase incur- occurs and the escape route. But eventually the Ark of the Covenant, according to many sources, ended up in Ethiopia, and according to many sources it's, it's there today. Um, but that essentially is, is, is the story But about sheba and solomon um that that's how the ark of the covenant ended up in ethiopia and if you, if you read the uh, even today to this day the ethiopian constitution declares that the the king of ethiopia shall be the the bloodline of this union between sheba and solomon
1: right so the the, the, the up until recently i guess uh the the leaders in Ethiopia, were, uh, they could draw a direct line to Menelik, the son of right to, to Menelik, Solomon exactly. and, Sh- and Queen Sheba. Wow, Amazing. Right. And then and I
2: think it was in the seventies. I think there was an uprising. Might even later that there was an uprising within our within the last generation or two, and that, that's no longer the case. But for for you know many many decades or centuries prior to this, exactly the the the, the, the leader of. Ethiopia could trace their bloodline all the way back to oh, 3,000 years ago, about 900 right. B.C.
1: And then there was an airlift because there was a civil war in Ethiopia, and the, uh, Israel airlifted, right. I'm not sure how many, Ethiopian Jews back to Israel, and, and were they also then descendants These from Menelik? They,
2: they were probably descendants of the advisors sent to advise ah. Menelik. Remember I mentioned the minister's sons, all of a right. and So that's one of the theories as to how the Ethiopian Jews ended up down there is that they descended from these advisors
1: all right, so the other the other uh, sort of subplot or main plot in sheba's Revenge has to do with the location of ancient Israel, and this is where it gets controversial very controversial uh, be- yes yes, because well, you explain what one of the um, characters in the book. Discovers about the location of ancient Israel, right? So Uh, ancient Jerusalem. Sorry, ancient Jerusalem. Ancient
2: Jerusalem. Yeah. So even today, um, if if you just open up a Wikipedia page and read about Jerusalem, one of the first things you read is that there actually is no archaeological evidence of Jerusalem going back to the time of King Solomon, which is really shocking. Because Solomon, if you read about what he built, he built the temple, of course, a palace. A Hall of Justice. Uh, he had five or six major um, structures, and they were the center of all this international trade. And it would be as if um, centuries or millennia from now, people were looking for evidence of Washington D.C. and could not find the Capitol Building, or the White House, or the Supreme Court, or the Smithsonian Building. It's uh, almost un- unbelievable to think that they wouldn't be able to find evidence of any of the great structures of washington dc it's the same thing in jerusalem that there's no evidence whatsoever of any of solomon's structures in jerusalem and so a lot of arab sources have been arguing for about forty years now that the true jerusalem the true jerusalem of king solomon's time period is not in what we call israel today instead it's in western arabia western saudi arabia um, now of course if that were to be true that would call into question the whole Jewish claim to the promised land. I mean, if if the promised land was not really in, if Jerusalem wasn't really in Israel, then the promised land is not Israel, it's western Saudi Arabia, which, of course, nobody wants. It's just desert. Um, And so Arab sources have been sort of kicking this idea around for a while, and Israeli archaeologists have been desperately trying to find some kind of evidence that supports the claim that, Solomon's Temple really was in Jerusalem and have not been able to do that so far. The reason it becomes interesting in, in light of the, the Sheba and Menelik story is I mentioned earlier that, that Menelik and his, and, his, and his ministers with the Ark of the Covenant uh, escaped from Solomon, and, and the Kebron Agath dis- describes their escape route. And if you read the escape route, it makes absolutely no sense if the if they started in Jerusalem in Israel, but makes perfect sense if they started in what the what we'll call Jerusalem in Arabia, the the the, the spot that uh, a number of Arab sources believe it it should be, um, place names and and how fast they could travel and how many days it would take and when they would cross the 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 Red Sea and all that stuff it just makes no sense if you leave from traditional uh, Jerusalem, but it makes. Perfect sense if you leave from Arabia. So that's an interesting the combination of the lack of archaeological evidence and the detailed escape uh, described in the Qabrinagass sort of gives some life to this possibility that Jerusalem really wasn't in um, in, in Israel. The story would be that the Jews were exiled uh, at during the Babylonian invasion, or I think it's five eighty seven BC, around six hundred BC, right. that they spent. 70 or 80 years in Babylon, which is modern Iraq, and that when they were finally freed, that that's when they went to modern-day Jerusalem, a few hundred years after Solomon. And, and at that point, we do start to see archaeological evidence, the idea being that nobody in the, during the Babylonian exile remembered where the real Jerusalem was. So when, when the leader said, hey, we can't go back to the old Jerusalem because it, it, it's, it's no longer, um, we're no longer welcome there, we need to go to a, a new Jerusalem, but we need to sort of tell the people that it's the old place, so they're excited to go. But no one will know the difference. We're just going from you know, we're, no one's old enough to remember. So we're going to go to a different one, and so they go to the modern day Jerusalem around you know five hundred BC instead of eight hundred BC, and then right, we start right. seeing archaeological
1: evidence. Um, so that uh, we got to that's take a of the we'll theory, take a quick time out, course. David. Sorry, yeah. we've got to take a quick time out here. We'll come back and uh, discuss further, and, and we will link this back to uh, the legendary treasure of Oak Island. David S. Brody is with us. He's got a brand new one called Sheba's Revenge, and we're talking Oak Island, folks, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740.
1: And we are back with David S. Brody. The brand new one is Sheba's Revenge. He's also the author of Pillars of Enoch. That's pretty recent as well. Uh, Watchtower of Turtle Island, Romerica. I think that's the last time we spoke, David, when you wrote uh, when Romerica had just come out. Yeah, um,
2: I've, been, I've been pushing these out pretty quickly the last couple of years. <laughs> During the pandemic, I've done every six months. I've been releasing a new one. So wow. I think you're right. Last time I spoke was uh, Romerica.
1: That's right. Oh, uh, before we go, get going again, I just want to uh, give a quick shout out to a couple of my Patreon supporters in the Star Chamber tier. I want to thank uh, Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan. Deep paul and tim sullivan thank you both so much for your generous support and uh if you're interested in becoming an official supporter of this program and all of the work that we do here you can go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet again deep paul tim sullivan uh your uh, your generosity is greatly appreciated and i'm very humbled by it thank you so much all right so we were talking about uh, queen sheba and uh also evidence that ancient is uh, ancient jerusalem was in western saudi arabia although i have to say um uh i i i don't necessarily believe that i mean there there is some it's an interesting argument i think about 10 years ago they found um some defensive walls in um in Jerusalem and right around where they believed the uh, the first temple would have been located and, and uh there were um uh they were pretty thick, pretty thick walls and I'm not sure several hundred feet long and there was a gatehouse and and different things. And um it does mention, I think in First Kings that Solomon built built these defensive walls. So I don't know if that's the if that's the smoking gun, if that's the archaeological evidence that would would prove that uh, Jerusalem was located in Israel or not. However, it's um, they, they keep digging and hoping to find more, perhaps.
2: Um, right. It, 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 so, it's, I mean, there, there are hints at it, but there's not nearly enough, not nearly as much as you would think. Again, right. If if the, the, the structures that Solomon built were as elaborate as have been described, you would think it'd be very easy to find them, and we're just not finding them. And so, um, there's other, there's other like uh, little hints about this. For example, um, I don't want to get too deep into the into the uh, argument, but there's a whole thing about um, when Moses is wandering in the desert. He runs into his, he's in the Sinai desert with the, you know for 40 years, uh, wandering, and he runs into his father-in-law, uh, Jethro, Zipporah's father, and uh, and that story always never made any sense to me either because if you're wandering in a desert as big as the Sinai. Um, it's about the size, uh, almost about two-thirds the size of the state of Maine. I mean, you don't just wander around and run into somebody. I think a more realistic story is that he went uh, looking for his father-in-law, who happened to live in, uh, not in the Sinai, but uh, in Median, which is in Western Arabia. And because uh, Jethro was the ruler in that area, and that Moses had, had been exiled previously and had gone, and that's how he met Zipporah when he was in Western Arabia, Median. and so he went looking for him. So instead of wandering around, he said, well, instead of wandering a strange desert, I'll wander over to this other desert where my father-in-law is, and he'll be able to give us supplies and some land. And that story, and there's a Mount Sinai there, just like there's a Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. That story sort of holds water. Um, and then more specifically, we get to the point where they finally decide to stay. And, and settle. And the Book of Joshua goes into specific detail, the painstaking detail about how land is given to each one of the Jews who are wandering in the desert. This amount of land, and described here, given to given to him and, him, and him, and him, and him, and him. And the one thing that's shockingly missing in this is that Moses's children, sons, are given nothing. They're not mentioned at all, which is a really again uh, shocking. Uh, 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 occurrence. So why, why would Moses' sons be left out of this? What suddenly occurred to me, the reason left out is if this land was owned by Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and they were divvying the land up and dividing up some of the land and giving it to everybody, there'd be no reason to give it to Moses' children because they're going to inherit it anyway from their grandfather. Right. So it would be like the king giving out land. He wouldn't give any to his sons because The sons get everything that's left over, everything that wasn't divided. So that's another sort of piece of this argument. Is if you read the book of Joshua, it's very strange that Moses' sons are not accounted for in the land distribution. So again, it's another another evidence. But but yeah, so it's it's still an open question. And and the point in my book that I make is that Israel doesn't want this to be a debate. Understandably, they, they you know sort of the whole basis of of the promised land and the holy land and all that is. They just don't even want to have the conversation. They don't want to let him dignify it with a response. And so, in my story, once this starts to, to percolate, the Mossad gets involved and we need we need to we need to end the story now. And the way that they decide one of the ways they decide to do it is they say, "Hey, you know, if the if the Templar gold is really buried at Oak Island, and the Templars got their gold from Solomon's Temple in the early 1100s." which most people agree they did, then we can test that gold and prove by one of two methods. One is is basically every gold gold mine has sort of unique fingerprints and attributes. The mineralogy of every gold mine is different, so we would know where the gold came from. And also, we can tell when the gold was poured from its molten form into some kind of mold. Uh, There's a helium test that can be done. And so if we can prove that the gold that came out of Solomon's Temple, is indeed 3,000 years old, then, then this whole argument goes away, because it would prove that it comes from Solomon's Temple, and Solomon's Temple is where the gold came, you know, everything, everything falls into place. And so right, that's how right. the Mossad so- gets involved in, in the Oak Island mystery. They want to get ah. the gold and use it to prove the, that this whole argument about uh, Jerusalem and Arabia is bogus.
1: So is that, is that true, that you could determine the location, the, uh, the exact location, and the time the gold coins were minted using, uh, you, you mentioned helium? This is all technology that's available today?
2: Yes. So um, all gold contains um, traces of uranium and thorium. Uh, when they decay, they produce helium. I'm getting in trouble here because I'm not a scientist. But when gold <laughs> is put in its molten form, the helium is lost. Once the gold cools, the helium's locked in again. So t- you take a sample of the gold and melt it down again, and then you can determine how old the helium is. How, how long has the helium been locked in the gold? By, you, you can ascertain it by measuring its rate of decay. So you know, I can't, but this is, this is done in a lab, <laughs> and, and, and this is a technology that allows scientists to determine the age of gold objects. Uh, this becomes very important when you're trying to determine if you're a museum, for example, whether something is, you know, is, is some kind of forgery. A gold was it real? Did it really come out of an Egyptian tomb, or is it a 19th century or 20th century fake? And so this technology becomes very important. Uh, but it could be used if if gold were to be discovered at Oak Island, we could use it. If once it's been poured, we can date how we can. Date, the, as you said, the time of minting. If it happened to be a coin, or if it was just a, a, a candelabra or a goblet, we could date the to go back to the time of when that was poured, and that becomes allow that allows you to, to basically determine the origin of the object.
1: Well, that's remarkable. So then, then the the uh, key to to proving the location of ancient Israel or ancient Jerusalem in Israel lays or lies. Thousands and thousands of miles across the Atlantic, in the money pit in a little island off the coast of Nova Scotia.
2: That, <laughs> well, again, that's... all this presupposes that the Templars really did find right. Solomon's gold under the under, you know under the Temple of Solomon in the horse stables back in the 1120s or whatever, and that they did indeed bring it to Oak Island, uh, probably you know after they were outlawed in 1307 or maybe before, and that it still. Is there that they never actually took it and did anything else with it, but there it is. So, you know, all this is, you know, we've got a, a number of, of of jumps we have to make. But, you know, I write fiction, so I can have some fun with it. But that's how the story, that's how those two subplots link together. How the Sheba story links back to Oak Island.
1: That is a great premise, David. I mean, wow! Oh, thank you. Fantastic, fantastic. Um,
2: right, and, so... and there's some strong evidence at Oak Island. I mean, there's, there's, there's in particular, I'm, I'm guessing this would be your next question. I don't want to jump the gun on it, but the, the carb, this carbon fiber, I'm sorry, coconut fibers have been carbon dated, and the coconut fibers come from these flood tunnels. And there's three different um, carbon dating tests, and they all come back in the 12, as 12th century uh, dates for the, the coconut fibers. The coconut was used to uh, to to, to um, filter uh, the the flood tunnels. The, the, the box drains along the beach so they don't get clogged up for these flood tunnels. Um, and there's really no way for, for the coconut fiber to make it to Oak Island, because, of course, coconuts are not native to anywhere near Oak Island, other than they were brought there by somebody in the 12th century. Now, who's out there sailing the oceans crossing the Atlantic in the 12th century other than the Templars? I mean, it, it almost has to be the Templars. So there's strong evidence with the, with the, with the coconut fibers that there was a Templar presence on the island, and and there's also the the lead cross that they've made a big deal of in the last couple seasons. Again, 12th century, um, and and they've tied that lead cross to other Templar-related sites in Europe as well. But um, there's lots of dates at the island that are later than that, but of course that it's the earliest dates in my mind that are the most important, because that establishes who first settled on the island, or first Deposited treasure on the island, and then later dates are just more people coming over either to, to check on it or to remove it or to add to it or whatever. But the original dates of these 12th century dates, and they tie in the, the two of the dates, for example, uh, 1185 and 1180, are smack dab in, in, in accordance with Zena Halbert's research of, an, of, of a journey to the Catskills uh, and Oak Island, 1179 to 1180. It's,
1: it's we'll, we'll get to that. When we'll right uh, when we come back, David, we'll take a quick timeout. David S. Brody is with us, and uh, we are talking about Oak Island. The book is Sheba's Revenge. More in a moment. Don't go away. Pin numbers,
0: passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740.
1: And we're back with David S. Brody. The latest is Sheba's Revenge. We're talking about Oak Island. And you mentioned Zena Halpern, and this was uh he's the, the the noted oak island uh authority expert who passed away what was it twenty eighteen or no it was earlier this year wasn't it
2: uh no it was uh, it's been almost three and it's three and a half years i believe
1: so i think twenty eighteen ah, i think you're correct tw- it was twenty eighteen and so there's this this map uh that Zena Halpern had um i think it's i think you may you have it printed in the book halpern's map right right? and this this shows there's an arrow pointing to an island it's not actually oak island i think it's frog island and there's a date on there or it's not a date some people think it was a date 1347 now others are saying no that's not a date that that 1347 has has to do with navigation or some there's some controversy around that map right right
2: uh, unfortunately in I don't know if we have time to get too deep into all the Cremona document research she was doing, but no one has any originals of any of this stuff. And so a lot of it is, you know, is, is, is at, in my mind, the 1347 is the date somebody recopied this original map from 1179 or 1180. But for the purposes of the conversation tonight, on the map, uh, uh, the, the map is labeled um, in French the... Um, the island of Oaks, and then on the map is a specific point that's mentioned, the vault beneath the earth. And this map has been shown many times on on the Curse of Oak Island show. For some reason, they've never bothered to dig under the vault beneath the earth. Actually, I know the reasons, because they they didn't, until until very recently, didn't own that particular swath of land. It was part of uh, the Nolan land, uh, Fred Nolan's land. So only in the last Two seasons have they actually owned that land to be able to access it. But um, it turns out that the, the, the spot on the map matches exactly the foot of Nolan's Cross, the very, um, the boulder, the Nolan's Cross is comprised of a number of boulders. And the, and the very bottom of the cross, the foot, uh, there's a boulder and that matches up where Zena's map shows uh, the vault beneath the earth. And so in my story, that's where they go digging, looking for what they hope is going to be the Templar goals.
1: the vault beneath the earth. And yeah. and um, you mentioned, or I, th- I think you mentioned the Cremona document. His, his research on the Cremona document, and this is what kind of ties the Templars to Oak Island, right? It describes their journey to Oak Island and the Catskills right. it you mentioned—journey
2: eleven seventy nine to eleven eighty, um, where they they stop off in what. It, Described an island of oaks and it's uh, off the coast of what we now know as Maritime Canada. It looks like Oak Island and they continue on. They, they deposit, um, it looks like gold there, and they continue on and eventually end up in the Catskill Mountains. And most of the document deals with their time in the Catskills, but um, importantly, they do stop in, in, off of Nova Scotia on their way into further south and further east. One of the things that they, they, they that they do when they're um, in the Catskills is they, um, they, uh, they 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 find or they deposit a scroll, which is the, the ketubah, the marriage contract between the Hasmonian princess Miriam uh, Miriam of, of, of Migdal, which is basically Mary Magdalene, and uh, Yeshua ben Yosef of Cana which is of course Jesus son of Joseph of son of Joseph of cana so this this scroll this marriage contract apparently is one of the things that they brought over and that and that ties in with all the you know the the the, the legends of the templars and why they uh were eventually put down by the church and what, what 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 great secrets did they discover when they were in Jerusalem and and all the da vinci code stuff with Jesus and Mary Magdalene getting married and and all that and again we don't have time to probably get into all that stuff tonight but that's that's where these maps come from this this whole pile of documents which are called loosely called the cremona document and within that document are maps and this particular map of oak island with the vault is what i use to trigger the opportunity to dig uh, at a spot that might have the Templar gold
1: so on the tv show um they haven't they're they're preparing now to finally dig under that vault
2: no, they're digging this season. They're digging. Um, they're, they're they're staying at the money pit, and they're and they're, they're digging with with larger um, pipings. Um, I don't know if they're going to. It's only been t- two episodes, I think, this year. I don't know if they're going to be digging under Nolan's Cross. Um, you know, one of the things that they that this TV show, and 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 I'm not involved with it, so I, I can't speak to it firsthand, but. It's almost like Killing the Golden Goose. If they actually were to find the Templar treasure,
3: right. then
2: the show would pretty much end. You know, Part of it is the longer they can draw this out and keep us all interested and continuing to make finds that, that lead to the treasure, the longer this, the series can continue. And so I've always thought that they are not necessarily interested in finding the treasure right away, because then what happens? This franchise is worth... It's the Golden Goose. It's, worth it. it's the highest-rated show I think History Channel has. And so I don't know how anxious they are to actually wrap things up. Now, I also know this year that the government of Nova Scotia has sort of jumped in and has restricted them as to what they can do, where they can dig. Um, they had free reign for a long time, and now they are much more restrictive um, bureaucratically as to what they can do.
1: All right, we'll take one final timeout. David, come back and uh, discuss some more uh, Oak Island, perhaps maybe even a little sneak preview of, well, I guess it's your previous book, uh, Pillars of Enoch. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
0: Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer
1: Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in hour two, Charlie Robinson will be here. And uh, his new book is Hypocrisy, but it's spelt as in crazy, C-R-A-Z-Y. And uh, right now, a few minutes remain with David S. Brody. The latest book is Sheba's Revenge. We're talking about the treasure of Oak Island. Uh, Any question in your mind that that there is, in fact, Templar gold there, David?
2: Uh, Very much. I, I think if you had to pin me down, I would say that I believe that the Templars did deposit gold at Oak Island, but that later on it was taken away. Um, I just don't think that an organization that is that powerful and that knowledgeable and that good at keeping secrets and maintaining itself would just sort of forget that that they deposited all this treasure and lose track of it. I've heard one of the things that's floating around out there, and there's another set of journals not related to the Cremona document, but another set of journals, again, that have not been substantiated. But... Those journals talk about how the treasure was taken in 1775 by a group of Freemasons who came up to Nova Scotia from Philadelphia and brought the gold back and used it to fund the American Revolution. And I think that's a really fun story, and it sort of resonates as something that makes sense if we believe that the Freemasons, you know, were the successors to the Templars, and and the Templars were early. Um, promoters of the sort of the American ideals of liberty and freedom of religion, and some of the things that we like to think the Templars were 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 were, were uh, at the early stages of, of supporting in, during the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period. Uh, but that story of would, would be a, a nice story. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but, but I, I, big picture, I, I just can't believe that it would still be up there. I just can't believe they'd forget about it and have left it, lost track of it and left it there.
1: Right. Th- this idea of using that goal to fund the, the revolution, um, I think it was Sir Francis Bacon. Didn't he sort of refer to the new world as the new Jerusalem? So that might make sense then for the Templars to want to to fund that project, right? Get the right. New Jerusalem the Templars, off the oh, ground.
2: Yes, the New Jerusalem and sometimes also the New Atlantis. But yes, the same idea, which was that, you know, so many of our founding fathers in America, in, in the United States were, were Freemasons, and they were, you know, promoting this ideal of this new experiment in um, civil rights and individual rights. And again, not that the Templars were 100% behind all of that, but they were partway there. They were starting to, you know, they had been exposed to a lot of quote-unquote liberal ideas by traveling around the world. Remember, Europe was just coming out of the Dark Ages at this time, and and, and none of these ideas had taken hold. And the Templars learned a lot about this stuff while traveling and brought a lot of it back to Europe. And and many historians think you can trace the Enlightenment back to the ideals and ideas that the Templars brought back to Europe from the Middle East and the Far East and other places. And so the the roots of all this can can be traced back to the Templars and it does make sense that the Freemasons, being the successors to the Templars, would have wanted to continue that experiment or that new Jerusalem or the new Atlantis. And, and that, use, that, that treasure would have been that would have been a perfect use for that treasure. It, it, it makes sense. Like I said, it's a nice story. I just don't know
1: if it's true or not. Right, right. I, I interviewed the, I think he's the great-grandson of Jesse James, who was on the program a couple of times. And he believes his great-great-grandfather, uh, you know, he faked his death, lived, um, I think, well into the like the 1940s. It might have been in Oklahoma City or someplace like that. And he believed his great-great-grandfather was also involved in Templar treasure and had made a number of treasure maps. And they they were adorned with interesting Masonic symbols and so forth. Have you heard about that story?
2: Yeah, I've seen that book. As a matter of fact, it's on my list of, of things I'd like for, for the Christmas this year. Um, I haven't ah. read it, but I've seen, I've seen that story. But again, this goes back to what I said earlier, which is you know all of us want to believe in those treasures. You know, it's a, all of us old men, we, we want to, to find the, the child within us that still believes in the dream of buried treasure. Um, it, it's, it's, hard, it's hard not to be seduced by those stories, and they're fun.
1: It's true absolutely. I uh, flying home from Greece the other night I, I finally got to see the Goonies from 1985. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little late getting to some of these but that's all about you know young kids looking for for buried treasure.
2: Um yeah. Yeah, we all we all spent our uh, age 9 10 11 before we discovered girls you know, either playing sports or, or, or digging in our backyard looking for the treasure or panning for gold in the brook or something. So, yeah,
1: That's it. That's it. Uh, on the YouTube live chat, uh, YY is wondering, why don't they use, um, a, 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 I think it's called Sire radar or SIRA radar, Synchronous Impulse Reconstruction uh, radar to find the treasure at Oak Island?
2: <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know what that is. But, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm guessing that they're privy to all the latest technology. I know they have a huge budget for that kind of stuff. I have no idea why, you know, Gary Drayton doesn't have, you know, a magic wand that does that as well. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't answer that one.
1: Right. I'm not sure if it's C- Sire Radar or Sira. Anyway, um, I got to ask you. You mentioned that we, we were talking about the the Freemasons a little bit, which uh, brings us to your your previous book, which um, came out, I guess, this past spring. The yes. Pillars of Enoch, Templars, and the Melungian Legacy. What's that the about? Melungeons, yes. Yeah, so the Melungeons—they're
2: a, a mysterious group of people who live in Appalachia, uh, southern Appalachia, so Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky. And there are some famous uh, Melungeon people: Elvis Presley, probably the most famous. The um, Tom Hanks, the current actor, is Melungeon. Cher, the singer. Uh, Ava Gardner, the actress. But the thing about the Melungeon is is no one sort of knows where they came from. There was a Supreme Court decision uh, having to do with voting rights back in the early 1800s that declared that they were the descendants of the the Phoenicians. And DNA tests sort of indicate that they're partly Portuguese, partly Cherokee Indians, partly Sephardic Jews, and partly... North African, which is an interesting conglomeration of people. But in my story, I I, I start musing about those groups of people, and and what you end up with is basically the the vestiges, again, for me it always goes back to the Knights Templar, but the Templars, after they were outlawed, that sort of fits with what they were. They were were traveling, they were were sailing across the Atlantic, they were pirates, they were in Portugal, they they uh, they accepted a lot of Sephardic Jews in their order after they were outlawed. So, you know, I started wondering whether you could trace the Melungeon people back to the Templars. And what's interesting about Melungeon, and what, the way I trigger the story, is that it's pretty clear that the mother of Abraham Lincoln was Melungeon. And that would mean that Lincoln himself had perhaps African blood in him and Sephardic Jewish blood in him. And that opens up all sorts of interesting things when you start thinking about American history and you and know, how would that affect what we learn in school if it turns out that Abraham Lincoln, you know, he wanted to free the slaves maybe because he identified with them and that if you start looking at some of the, for example, his, his his grandfather and a couple of his uncles were named Mordecai, which is a, clearly a Jewish name, you know, and right, he, right. even the name Abraham itself is is, is generally a Jewish name. But um, it's just interesting to think that perhaps Lincoln had other things going on in his life that would have motivated some of his decisions. So that's what I used sort of to trigger that story. But the, the ancient Melungeon, the, the Melungeon people, uh, to this day, even we're not quite sure. They're not quite sure where they descend from, but DNA testing is sort of honing in on that, and it, it seems to indicate that they are a conglomerate of people from, that, 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 that had similar, a similar path to America as potentially the Templars had.
1: Oh, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Do you, ever, you look back on your days, you know, taking history in high school and, and thinking, my gosh, they were so off the mark. We just fed such a pile of malarkey.
2: I, I do, but I had a great second grade teacher. I remember raising my hand once as a little eight year old or whatever it was, and saying, Mrs. North, why is the timeline between the Vikings and Christopher Columbus? Why is it such a five hundred year Gap. I don't think I use the word gap, but why, why did nobody come back after the Vikings and before Columbus? And she looked at me and raised her eyebrow and said, that's a good question, David. Maybe someday you can answer it. So even as a little, what, <laughs> seven-year-old, eight-year-old, whatever I was, I had a great teacher who was saying to me, go figure it out. You're right. There's stuff missing. And I, to this day, well, I, was, I was thankful to Mrs. Norris, who, who sort of put that in my head, that I can go answer some of these questions. Um, so... Yes, it, it is a shame that we didn't learn all this stuff, but, but it's also fascinating to start to fill in some of these gaps.
1: Uh, well, and you've been doing that, David, quite nicely. So we've got uh, Sheba's Revenge just available, I think, the last couple of weeks on Amazon. Just the last week, And yes. Just last week. Excellent. Yes. Well, congratulations. You've done it again, David, and uh, always enjoy a, a visit from you, and we'll talk again soon, probably on coast, I hope.
2: I hope so. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Richard. Thank you
1: so much. Well, Likewise. David S. Brody. All right. When we come back, Charlie Robinson will talk, uh, well, hypocrisy spelled C-R-A-Z-Y. Surviving in a world of cultural double standards. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Plenty of more show to come. Hour two coming up in your New-
0: providing the evidence, and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. I'm Richard Sarratt. And I'm uh, delighted to be back in my home studio here in Thornhill, just north of Toronto, Ontario, and bringing this program to you live. Uh, quick programming note. Coming up next week, James D. Eugenio, one of the foremost JFK assassination researchers, will be here. This will be the, what, 50, 58th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy. Um Jim Jim D Eugenio, incidentally, is the um, the, uh, the gentleman who wrote the who wrote Oliver Stone's latest documentary on JFK. So who knows? Maybe Jim will bring Oliver Stone along with him onto the show. Well, probably not, but you never know. You never know. Jim and Oliver work uh, pretty closely together. Uh, you know, as a kid, uh, I absolutely loved Mad Magazine. Alfred E. Newman and terrific uh, satirical uh, magazine. A lot of it, you know, as a 10, 11-year-old, a lot of it went over my head. Uh, my neighbors, oh, we didn't have it in the house, but but our, my next-door neighbor was my, my best friend growing up. Uh, his older brother had a big stack of Mad Magazines, and I would go over there, and we would... Uh, I, I used to like Spy versus Spy. And why do I bring this up? Well, um, oh. It, Incidentally, I just learned, actually, I didn't know that up until three years ago, Mad Magazine was still around. Uh, The final issue of Mad Magazine was published back in April of 2018. Think about that. It launched, I think, in 1952. 1952 to 2018. That's nearly 70 years. What is that, 66 years? That's quite a run. Alfred E. Newman was 70 years old. Who knew? Uh, So I I mentioned this, Mad Magazine, because I'm looking at the cover of Charlie Robinson's book, Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. And again, it's hypocrisy, C-R-A-Z-Y, -crazy. hypocrazy. But when I look at the cover of the book, it reminds me a lot of Mad Magazine. There's Uncle Sam. Looking a little worse for wear. And he's in a, uh, he's kind of bedraggled. And he's in a straight jacket in a rubber room, looking, well, kind of crazy. Uh, so we're going to delve into uh, poor old Uncle Sam and the state of poor old Uncle Sam with uh, Charlie Robinson. And Charlie has uh, been with us before. Previously, he wrote uh, the. um, uh, the book The Octopus of Global Control. And then before or after that, he co-authored another book called The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire. So tonight marks his uh, third time on the program. And again, this one's called Hypocrisy, Hi- Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. And uh, when Charlie isn't writing books, he's the host of the Macroaggressions podcast, which can be found on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Rothkin, Rockfin, I'm not, uh, Rockfin, Rockfin, I'm sorry, Rockfin, YouTube, and Iconic. And uh, he's also the co-host of the wildly popular Roundtable podcast, The Union of the Unwanted, with Sam Tripoli, a.k.a. Tinfoil Hat, and uh, Ricky Verandas, The Ripple Effect, and Midnight Mike, OBDM. Charlie, welcome back to the program. How are you?
3: What, me worry? <laughs> I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we've got Uncle Sam right where he belongs in a padded cell. Uh, And I think after what we've witnessed over the last, uh, well, 10 years in general, but the last two years specifically, I think he's right where he belongs. Right. Uh, Tell me, who, who did the illustration for that? Guy named Mike Farron, um, I saw his work, and he and and it's funny you mentioned the Alfred E. Newman Mad Magazine because that's what I was kind of going for. I didn't want it to be Jim Garrisoned or or, or is that Ben Garrisoned out? Sorry, he got my Garrison's wrong. Um, <laughs> where it's too noticeable, so I wanted to be kind of a more of an obscure artist and i saw some of his work and i i just immediately said that's my uncle sam guy would you be interested in doing this and he said tell me about the book and i told him he said oh yeah let's do it so right so uh, i i wanted to have with that but well really all three of the books i want you to just be able to take a look at the cover and in three seconds go i think i know what this is about let's let's do it so if it's an octopus on top of the world for the first book which was a uh, a logo idea that I borrowed from the National Reconnaissance Office because they had that slapped on the side of one of their satellites, the Octopus, around the the world, and the the text wrote, "Nothing is beyond our reach." And I thought, that's wow. that's pretty scary." So I used that. The second book is Building Seven, wrapped in the American flag, midway through going down as a controlled demolition of the American Empire. I think people can figure that out. And and the the new one just. You know, just because it it's got Uncle Sam on the cover, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not limited to Uncle Sam. I mean, this is this sort of insanity is spreading, and it's not uh, it's not confined to the United States. It's not confined to the Northern Hemisphere. It's 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 happening a lot of places, and I think that people. Are tired of it. And they recognize it. They recognize the insanity. They didn't sign up for this. They want nothing. They, they want to be left alone. And yet the governments around the world are making it increasingly more difficult for people to be left alone. And so we're starting to see people frustrated throw in, you know, 18 months of uncertainty with regards to viruses and jobs and inflation and all that. And you have a recipe for, um, you know, for a lot of people to be very angry about the current situation. Did you start writing this book during COVID? I, yeah, I started writing this in 2019. And but pre-COVID Got to. uh, I had started uh, the controlled demolition book with Jeff Berwick the same year. I wrote a huge chunk of it, sent it over to Jeff, and while he was working on his part, I had a different idea for a different book. So I started on this one. It. it, um, I I took a break, you know. So I was kind of working on two books at once. When it got time for me to finish this one, I needed to go back, obviously, and and incorporate the COVID component into. The new book, because it's such a it's such a obviously important part. It's not just virus related, but it's it's every It's the psychology behind uh, governmental dictates and, uh, sci, you know, trust the science and science, you know, science with r- registered trademark, you know, <laughs> that right. science. And and so there were a lot of uh, components of the frustrations that Americans were feeling that were kind of coming out of the covid narrative but it's not it's not to say that that's the only problem or that that's the only thing that we need to talk about obviously it sucks up all the air out of the room for sure i mean it's the only thing that's been well i shouldn't say it's 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 the main thing that's been talked about for the last 18 months so i have to mention it but i also recognize that i didn't want to make it just a covid book so it i you know we get into a variety of topics obviously the corporate media is at the top of my list of res- of of directing my anger towards them we've got governments we've got the woke uh, lunatics on you know that are doing their thing so Uh, And and organized religion and all that good stuff. So, you know, wherever there's hypocrisy and let's face it, it's pretty much everywhere. um, I wanted to make sure that we, you know, that I addressed it in the book, including my own hypocrisy. Right. I mean, we're all guilty of it. I'm not trying to point fingers and say that I'm above uh, having uh, hypocritical thoughts. In fact, the first time that it really occurred to me that I was I was saying one thing and doing something quite different was I kind of had a built-in excuse, but I was installing the baby monitor over my daughter's crib while I was right in the middle of the Edward Snowden disclosures about how everyone was spy- – the NSA was spying <laughs> on us and reading our emails. And I'm going – I'm installing this thing going, yeah, but it's for her protection. I just need to, to watch her. And then I'm thinking, gosh, is this what they – this must be how they rationalize it for us. Like, oh, it's for their protection. They're far too stupid to be able to handle themselves. We have to watch her. Well, Charlie, your <laughs>
1: sin is – Hardly it can be compared. Yeah. Uh, you're, I, you know, what? what is that saying? Um, a, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. I mean, we're all we're all hypocrites. You're right. But but we don't have the guns right <laughs> we,
3: right <laughs> when i when, when my hypocrisy gets exposed it's me installing baby monitors when i'm against uh surveillance state, exactly right when when the government gets exposed for their hypocrisy people die or that's just it that's it yeah and and so though i have a you know i guess a, a, a well enough balanced sense of humor that i can laugh at myself i I don't find the government's hypocrisy charming. I find it very dangerous and insulting and and frustrating and inconsistent. You know, it, it, the the rules for the but not for me type of mentality, that rubs everybody the wrong way. So, you know, I'm going to make a list with all of the governors and senators and people that got busted on their COVID vacations whilst – in the middle of telling other people that they're not allowed to travel for holidays. So, you know, I had to, I had to make a list of those people, right? They, they, they deserve to be dragged out in front of the general public and reminded of their, of their rampant lies and have that sort of thing documented and footnoted so that people can double check my work and go see all of it. So, so though, though I, you know, though these serious, these topics are serious, the things that we're getting into in the book are, are relevant and important. It it always comes from like it has a comedic slant to yeah, it. Yeah, it is. It's very funny and it's
1: also very stream of consciousness. Did you sit down and write like, just sit it not all at once, obviously. But I'm I'm think I'm in my mind's eye. I'm sitting. You're sitting there. Just you can't type quickly enough to get it out. And and you're you're writing huge swaths of this book all at once. Like if you could stay up. For a hundred hours, you'd be writing for a hundred hours straight. Did that? Is that how
3: the book came together? Just you just poured it out of you? Okay, I think we've exposed that you are working for the NSA now because <laughs> there's there's no possible way you could have not. No, yes, I I did. I had there were certain didn't happen all the time, of course, but but there were, there were certain portions of the book where. Something happened. I sat down and I started writing. and a couple hours went by, and I feel like I came out of some sort of like trance or ayahuasca session or something. You know right. what I mean? And like, it, I looked, and the the i the screen was filled with all of these words that I had written. Uh, you know, sometimes really, I, I've had people ask about the 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 format of writing the book and. And what was the most difficult part of writing the book? And, f- and frankly, the most difficult part of the book was trying to de- de- decide what to cut out because I could have gone on and on and beaten this horse death to death multiple times with the hypocrisy of religious leaders and politicians and things like that. But so I had to narrow that down. The writing part was relatively easy. The 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 editing Part was the most difficult component because there's I had so much m- material to work with there's so many people out there that are saying one thing and doing another thing and and so uh, I, I but I kept writing up until the right over you know the very last minute I was going back in there trying to find as many relevant and recent articles that people could uh, could buy you know could could dig into in this so um, so I think it'll I think a lot of people will will laugh at the absurdity of it all but uh, but probably walk away from the book a bit frustrated because the things that I'm writing about, though, you know, funny on the surface, they have real world impacts. I mean, these are the types of things that are going to matter to us moving forward. So if you write about Federal Reserve hyperinflating the currency during 2020 and, and creating 40 percent of all dollars that are in existence just in that one year. And, and we write about how this is, a you know unsustainable and kind of like a Ponzi scheme, you know, people may snicker at that until they realize that they they may be holding their, their assets, their net worth in U.S. dollars. And if they are now, they have to it, it stops being funny really quick when they start to realize that what's been done has been done to them. So um, trying to find that balance between waking people up, scaring them, but not. Scaremongering just for the sake of of trying to scare just you know trying to inform people of the reality of the situation which is kind of scary without it being overly dramatic was what i was going for and and i feel like the humor component of it will keep you hanging in there through the through the through, through the dark parts in the book where you want to just, you know, throw your television set out the window, which you probably should do anyway. But, but, but you'll get to these points where you'll just, you'll have this frustration. You will how do these people, how are they allowed to do this? You know? And then you'll, and then there'll be a joke in there and then you'll get a good laugh out. It'll keep you hanging in. I kind of had to do it with the octopus book as well because when you get into these dark topics that are really serious, I mean, you just – you hope that somebody doesn't go, oh, this is just too much for me. You know? So you got to kind of keep a little bit of a lightheartedness to it just to keep them hanging in there.
1: Right. You, you,
3: we have to laugh because
1: otherwise we'd cry. Charlie Robinson is with us. The new book is Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. And again, we should point out that it's uh, hypocrisy spelled H-Y-P-O-C-R-A-Z-Y, as in crazy.
3: And uh, how do we get a copy? Amazon has the paperback and the Kindles digital versions can be found on my website the theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com there's a there's a part in there where you can just donate via PayPal and i send you the digital version of the book so so people can go to my website and and sort that out but um yeah it's it's a it's a you know there's there's 480 footnotes in the book and the reason and it it's not meant to be like an encyclopedia or anything like that but i i i realized that While I was about a third of the way through the book, I better show my work on this one Uh, because some of the stories and some of the examples I was giving were so preposterous and so uh, unbelievable that I was – I felt like there might be a point where people might think I was making it up and so i said i am going to i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I, I don't give anybody any place to go if you if you think i'm 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 making uh, you know be, be embellishing just for, for the jokes i get it i totally understand it sounds some of the things that have, that are in the book are so nuts well, for that, for instance here's one that i'm sure you had to do a
1: citation because people wouldn't believe it but leonardo dicaprio flying 8000 miles in his private jet to pick up his environmental award
3: they don't see it though. That's the problem is that they don't see it. He then left and spent a week on the fifth largest yacht in the world in, uh, in the Mediterranean, which look, I don't, I don't fault him for those things, right? If you're a movie star and you've got the money and you're flying in your private jet and you're doing all and you're flying, you're, you're, you're cruising around, the Mediterranean in a boat that puts off more carbon emissions than most cities, I get it. If you've got the financial ability to do that and you're not interested in saving the world or doing right. anything, But don't lecture us on – yeah, that's the point. That's hypocrisy. the problem. Right. That's the problem. It's when you get him going up in front of the – cop 26 climate summit and meeting with all of these people and he's gonna he's gonna tell everyone hey listen i'm gonna i'm gonna come up here and i'll speak as well at this event and i'll tell everyone what we need to do to save the world and then all 400 of us can fly out of here on our private jets and just go all and just (laughs) and just pat ourselves on the back for such a job well done so yeah. Right. I mean, every every day you just pick up the newspaper
1: and you could just you could keep writing volume after volume. This stuff practically I know I, I won't say writes itself because that would that's a oh. discredit to you. I mean, you're you're putting it through giving it a, a kind of a comedic lens. Otherwise, as I say, we'd have to cry about this stuff. But uh, you, you mentioned COP26. And I don't know if uh, um, this happened in glasgow or it was in the g20 i guess in rome where all of these leaders were driving around in their electric vehicles did you read about this it turns out the electric vehicles how did they power them with
3: diesel power generators (laughs) i saw that they had they had barriers up blocking the diesel power. look these people are hypocrites they they say one thing and do another thing and that's You know, that's not the biggest crime in the world. Again, it's not it's not a big deal if your buddy does it to you or your friend does it to you or whatever. But these people have an intention of remaking society based on climate change. And they know that that stuff isn't what they say it is. And they know that and then act accordingly. So it, we, it's theater to them, whether it's the mask theater. We've seen plenty of those videos of floating around this summer of all of them uh, at, the, at the summits with their masks on for the pictures. And they're like, and we're out, you know, and then everyone just takes their masks off. And it's like th- this is. It's it's theater of the of the absurd. It's uh, it's theater when it comes to the climate component of it. It's um, but if it and if it was left just there, I could just appreciate it for being uh, ludicrous and we could laugh at it. But the problem is that, of course. The decisions that are made at these summits are going to have real-world impacts on us. Uh, we'll be the ones paying the price. We won't be getting the exemptions for, you know, to be able to move freely around the the world. But of, of course, these guys will. So it's, um, um, you know, it's 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 funny. To a point, but then it takes on more – it it won't be funny at some point when, when the things that they're talking about have now been implemented and they're being used against us under the guise of saving the planet, which they, of course, have no interest in doing. All right, we'll take a quick timeout, oh, Charlie. Stick with us. Uh, back with
1: more of my conversation with Charlie Robinson. The new book is Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. We'll also take questions and comments from our YouTube live stream. And uh, Ryan, you can, uh, you can put those together and send me uh, a list of questions. And also, of course, we'll open up the phone lines as well. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show in three minutes. Don't go away.
0: The only Owners of
1: the system are asleep. Now we can
0: play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarratt from Zoomer Radio. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with
1: Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Charlie Robinson is with us, and the brand new one is Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards, and Hypocrisy spelled H-Y-P-O-C-R-A-Z-Y, Hippo Crazy. Look for the the illustration of poor old Uncle Sam in a straitjacket on the cover, and it's available at Amazon. So uh, there's hypocrisy as you as you uh, were pointing out, we're all capable of that. That's kind of a human trait. Uh, but again, people—let's call them the um, the uh, the media elite, the the uh, the ruling class—there's uh, a there's an element of sociopathy here. I mean, I, I think in order for these people to do what they do, you know, if if we were to do something like that and get caught, we would be shamed for life. I mean. You know, we'd crawl into a corner somewhere and and you'd never hear from us again. We'd be so embarrassed. But these people, they just get up and they do it again the next day and the next day and the next day and there are no consequences. You have to be, I would think, a bit of a sociopath
3: to be able to pull that off, don't you? Oh, of course. It's, it's required. It's... Um it takes me back to that, that Noam Chomsky interview he did a while ago where he was, he was being interviewed by a guy, a UK journalist, and the UK journalist said something like, what, are you trying to tell me that I, what, I, I don't believe what I'm saying? And Chomsky said to him, no, no, what I'm trying to say is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be where you are. And I think with a lot of the media or you know, the, the media, politicians, whatnot, th- it is run by psychopaths. And but you don't need to convince them to do these things. You don't need to train them to do these things. It's it's a it's a lot like Chomsky's answers. If you believed doing things a different way, you wouldn't be there. You would be some, you would be working at a gas station. You wouldn't be the head. Of, you wouldn't be Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, who I would suggest is as qualified to run CNN as a guy that works at a gas station. But he's a psychopath of the highest order. So he doesn't have a problem instructing the people in his morning meetings to lie. He doesn't have a problem saying, well, you know, we're not going to we're not going to focus on this. You get the Project Veritas hidden camera videos where the guy has a CNN producer. and He says, well, you know, you know, we're really just going to we're kind of done with the the Biden stuff. We're going to pivot to climate change now. And you go, oh, okay. I mean, we knew you were going to do that. Of course, any of us that are paying attention understand this this scam that's running on. But. But when the media makes the decision, we're done with this, we're now on to something new. I think that it, 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 it's not – that's not how you would do it if you were on to something relevant and important. It's, it, it's not that. The reason why Jeff Zucker knows that it's time to pivot to climate change is because it's not about it being relevant. It's not about it being important or, or, or a, a reasonable thing to talk about. It's about selling a narrative. And it's narrative time for climate change. So he got the memo, probably from the Council on Foreign Relations, maybe the Atlantic Council, German Marshall Fund or Bilderberg. One of these groups is telling him it's time to get off of of what you're normally doing. And let's talk about this new thing, which is the reason why these media, these legacy corporate media companies move like Herd animals, you know, like once one of them moves, they all move in that direction. Once one of them picks up on a story, they all move. So you, you've you got to keep an eye on the mainstream media. They are psychopaths and pathological liars of the highest order. But the, but an interesting is, has been happening lately, and that is that. They've told so many lies that they can't keep track of them all anymore. And the funny thing about the Internet, for better or for worse, is that it it's keeps, track of,
1: it <laughs> it's keeps track
3: of what you've said. So when you've got like CNN putting the CDC director on and they're saying one thing, they're saying, hey, if you take this this injection thing, uh, you won't get covid. And everyone's looking around going. I don't think she's allowed to say that, but she said it on CNN, you know, and then, and then, <laughs> and then a couple months later, CNN says, well, we, we never said that. We, you run videos like, well, would you like me to show you the video of you having them say that? And I said, well, that, that we don't, things have changed. The science has changed. Exactly. You, know, new yeah, you can't catch them in the lie no. because they just
1: re they reframe the question or, or move the goalposts. Well, I wasn't, that's not what I meant. Or, uh, you know, you're, you're too dim to understand what I was really saying. There, they, there's just no – there is no accounting. There is no um, – uh, you know, there's no payback for these people. They just continue to get away with it. And that's what's so demoralizing, I think, for the rest of us peons, is that the the media class and the, uh, the ruling class, um, first of all, there's no opposition. I don't know no. – um, like up in Ontario here, for example, we've got the uh, the Progressive Conservative Party, uh, you know, and they're all for, for lockdowns and vaccine mandates. And the opposition, instead of pushing back and saying, hold on, maybe, you know, there's an- another way. No, they want to lock down harder. That's the opposition. So, you know, what's a, what are poor slobs like us to do? And then the media are, instead of, you know, trying to hold them to account, they're cheering them on.
3: They're cheering them on. Yeah. So
1: there's and, nobody. There's nobody speaking for us. Great and, unwashed.
3: No. And denying reality while they do it, too. As you see, 100,000 people march but past the BBC's office. BBC doesn't report on anything, you know. Um, the, and, and, of course, this is happening all over the place. Melbourne, you can look at the the front page of Melbourne uh, newspaper this morning after they had 100,000 people march. Not a word about it, right? So the media then gaslights the general public by telling them either directly or or by just refusing to cover the stories, what you see out there, what you're interested what you're trying to to make us aware, that doesn't exist. We're not talking about that. And there's a segment of of the population that has been unfortunately conditioned to believe that if it doesn't appear on their nightly news then it isn't happening. And consequently, if it does appear on your nightly news, then it is happening exactly the way that the nightly news says it's happening too. So that's dangerous. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area when it comes to the truth in in the media and here in the United States. Obama did something that was very unusual. It kind of flew under the radar, but he he passed something called the Smith-Munt Modernization Act of 2012. And what that did is it it amended the original Smith-Munt Act that came out in 1948, which prohibited propaganda to be used inside America on Americans. And what Obama's law did that was stuffed into the NDAA and passed along in 2013 with everything else that had nothing to do with this – his law said, no, no, we, we're going to allow for a certain amount of propaganda to be used on Americans in America through the media. Good luck figuring out what percentage of your nightly news is that propaganda and what percentage is not, because it's all mixed in there like information sausage. And you get to try and figure out where the lies are. So I would suggest that Obama didn't change the law legalizing propaganda if he didn't intend to use some propaganda. So that's where we get down, you know, to where we are right now. If you have a, a conversation or even a debate with somebody in your circle that's like a normie, so to speak, remind them of that. You know, remind them of this. Well, I don't know if the media – I mean, yeah, the media doesn't get everything right, but I don't know that they're necessarily lying to you. you say, no, no. They took the extraordinary step of legalizing lying to you in twenty. Uh, with in 2013 so they're going to be lying to you it's not a matter of if they're going to do it the, the question is just about how much this level of coordination now though, we have
1: between the the uh, the ruling class and the media class this is unprecedented i mean uh Yes, there was always some corporate control and, the, and, and, and a concentration of media ownership. And, you know, we all know the story of how, you know, 27 media companies became 12 and then now it's five or six or whatever the number is. Um, but even, let's say, going back 10, 10, 15 years ago, there there was some pushback from the media. I mean, is there a, is there was there a pivotal moment, do you think? Can we sort of mark, it, mark a line in the sand when it all changed, when the media became uh, the media party, basically, and a cheerleader for for authoritarian regimes in this I country? I think
3: when I think when Obama came in, I think that the media in the United States was terrified of Dick Cheney and the Bush administration, and they were terrified uh, of. Um, they were they were scared of these guys. They still had an adversarial relationship a little bit of, with with the administration. But once Obama got into office, the media felt like their guy was there and it felt like a blur, a blending of uh, the mainstream corporate media and the White House. And it wasn't limited to just the, the media blending with the White House. Social media blended with them as well because I put a, a a list, a chart in the book of all of the people from the Obama White House that now have jobs at Facebook, very high level jobs at Facebook. So what we're seeing is it used to be that, there, like I said, there was an adversarial sort of relationship between the press and uh, the government, and they had to keep it Check on one another, and they knew. Yeah, the CIA was infiltrating the, you know, the 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 media through Operation Mockingbird, and we knew about that. That wasn't a big secret. But you're right. There was. It seemed like there was some pushback, but that's that changed. That changed a little over ten years ago, and now it's it's. Um, well, I mean, just look at the the leaked. Uh, emails of of Hillary Clinton talking about, you know, can we get Maggie Haberman, who's a a, a reporter? Can, Maggie always writes good stories about us. Maybe we can get Maggie in here. We can get her to write a good story about us. So they've always been manipulating and sweet-talking the press, you know, and sort of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But it's it's now turned into uh, the that there's no checks and balances. The media is fully captured. I mean, and I—, I they were captured before, but but like you said, you felt that there was a bit of pushback. Uh, Trump came in, and Trump broke the media's brains. I mean, they for all his insanity, and there was plenty of it, what he did to the mainstream media in general and CNN in particular was outstanding because he reminded the general public that they are fake news. And I was never a Trump fan, and I, I'm not on the red team or the blue team. Um, but when he said that, I thought, good. Now everybody's, you know, obviously the people on the right are going to listen. The people on the left will never listen to anything Trump said because they hated him so much. They were blinded to that. But in, in actuality, he was correct on that point, at least that, that, uh, the mainstream media is fake news. They're fake news. That's their job. That's their whole point of being in existence. They're not in existence to get great ratings because um, my, my business partner, I, I work in real estate too. My business partner's in real estate they had a their own home renovation show on HGTV, just a, a simple home renovation Char- show. And- Charlie,
1: sorry, pardon the interruption. I'm just looking at the clock here. I'm, I'm a little bit oh, late for it. a break, so we'll take a quick time. I'll come back sure. and we'll pick up on that point. Charlie Robinson, hypocrisy, surviving in a world of cultural double standards. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from
1: Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder: next week on the program, Jim Di Eugenio will be here. Noted JFK assassination researcher. He wrote uh, Oliver Stone's latest documentary on JFK. And hopefully, maybe you never know, Jim might bring uh, Oliver on the program. But uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. It's it, a bit of a long shot. <laughs> anyway, Jim will be here for the full two hours. Fifty-eight years since uh, JFK was assassinated. Also, again, I want to shout out to Deep, Paul, and Tim Sullivan, two of my uh, Patreon supporters in the Star Chamber tier. Thank you so much for your generous contributions. It really makes a big difference on the program, and um, I'm sincerely touched uh, by your generosity. Charlie Robinson is with us. Hypocrisy, surviving in a world of cultural double double standards. We were talking about the media and how uh, it's not about ratings. I mean, if it were, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo would be uh, long gone. Gone, and um, the other fellow, Uh, Stelzer? uh okay. they have no ratings. I mean, they. Uh, I, I could open the window here and shout out the window, and probably more people would hear me. Uh, so that,
3: that was my point to yeah. the story of the the show that my business partners and I were doing, just a, a home renovation show for HGTV. Well, we would look at the ratings for that. We did that for three years. Our ratings for this obscure show that ran on a Thursday night that you know was was doing pretty good but not killing it. Our ratings were double CNN's. Wow, double. They're they're and, and, you know, so they've got the studios and thousands of employees and million-dollar anchors and all of this stuff and all of this stuff for what? It can't be for. Qu- <laughs> You're not getting the best quality anchors if you've got Don Lemon and uh, and Brian Stelter and the like. So what is it about? Is it just about people that'll play ball well? There and a Zero Hedge article came out a couple of days ago that said that there's there's about to be a big shakeup at CNN with the on-air personalities. So if there is a God out there, please, I don't ask you for much, but please just go ahead and make this happen as soon as possible. Thank you very much in advance.
1: Um, I was earlier, you were saying, you know, you're, you were talking about some of the things that Trump did that were good. And one of them was, you know, pushing back hard against the fake news media. Um, But then you said, you know, you're not blue or red. You know, I, I I recently spoke with uh, Mickey Willis, who, who uh, wrote Plandemic. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me, you know, he was a hardcore lefty. He was a Bernie supporter up until, you know, he started investigating this whole COVID thing. And he had this awakening because he realized that the only people pushing back against COVID uh, are, are people sort of right of center. And I'm not talking about, you know, Republicans necessarily, because we have the rhinos and so forth, but just, uh, conservative people, yeah. salt of the earth people, rural people—the uh, only ones, you know, standing up and saying, "Hell no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna vaccinate my seven-year-old." They have a statistically zero chance of getting COVID uh, or dying from COVID, rather, a stati- statistically zero, with no underlying conditions. Uh, but if they take a jab, they have like one in five thousand chance of coming down with myocarditis. That's that's heart damage. Uh, and it seems that all of these people that are pushing back are, tend to be right of center.
3: Are you, are you coming around to that same kind of conclusion? I am. It's an interesting thing. I think it has to do with your level of trust in the media. Your level of trust in the media is, you know, directly proportionate to your level of trust in the vaccine. And of course, my level of trust in the media is zero. So I think you can extrapolate where how I fall on that spectrum when it comes to the shots. But but, you know, it shouldn't be it is, but it shouldn't be a political debate when we're talking about medicine. And yet it's turned into that. It's turned into, you know, I put a a, a chart in the book talking about masks. It was just bullet points. It was like the stages of masks. It started with. Eh, don't wear the mask. They don't work. you know. And then it was, well, they don't work, but don't buy them because we need the hospital workers to be able to get them and everything. We don't want you to take take them all and create a supply shortage. The last thing on the list of the evolution of the mask uh, debate was I wear a mask so that people don't think I'm a Republican. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah You're like, exactly.
3: Wow. Yeah, it's the okay. ultimate
1: uh, virtue signaling, isn't it? Right. I wear masks because I care more about, I I care more than you do. Right.
3: Yeah. It's an interesting thing. It's a virtue signaling component to this that, that says, uh, I'm more obedient than you. I'm, you know, it's so it, it did an interesting thing. It, it deputized morons into having a purpose in life, you know, guys and women that were sitting around not doing really much before this whole pandemic kicked off. They were approached by the media and the government and the Fauci's of the world and said, listen, we've got to wear the mask. We've got a social distance. If all of us do it, it'll all go back to normal. We're going to need your help. These people heard I'm important. I now have a purpose. And so they go out there with the belief in their head that they're going to do their part. Not a bad thing, right? Not, not in, to be fair, doing your part to make sure that other people don't get hurt is not a bad thing. But they were... They did that at the expense of reason and logic and actual science—not bot science, but but real science. They checked their brain at the door and then went out and called the police on people for having too many cars in the, your neighbor's driveway on Thanksgiving. I mean, this is insane. And so it it, it did something—you know—it it really worked on the social justice warrior component of this because those people are. Obsessed with making everything a level playing field, which is unrealistic and and unnecessary but but that in their mind they're they're going to do whatever they can to make it fair for everybody so so they they were whipped up into a frenzy because finally they were important they had something to do, and so i I feel like people that 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 took on that role of enforcer or brown shirt or whatever you want to call them. Those are the people that are going to be extremely dangerous in the next stage of this evolution, which is when you get to the climate component and you have the same sort of – Mentality—the same sort of me- media-fueled um, um, insanity where people. Yeah, they're are shifting
1: all, those gears now. It, the climate sure. lockdowns are coming. Uh, we'll take one final time out. Charlie. Stick with us. Deputizing morons—I love it. Charlie Robinson, hypocrisy surviving in a world of cultural double standards. Back with more in a minute.
0: Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: And a few minutes remain with Charlie Robinson. Uh, his latest is Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. And again, hypocrisy spelled H-Y-P-O and then crazy, C-R-A-Z-Y, hypocrisy. Uh I want to just crib here from your book, Charlie, Insanity of the Woke Mob, you are right. it's worth pointing out that being woke is not the same thing as being awake. In fact, most people that think of themselves as woke are more asleep than others due to their focus on a small sliver of society at the expense of the big picture. The woke mob is like a swarm of piranhas that destroy everything in their path until there is nothing left, then turn on each other because all they know is destruction. There is no negotiating with them. They cannot be reasoned with using logic or facts. And if someone bows down to them once, they will demand it forever. It's not a group of advocate. It's not. It is, it is not a group advocating for fairness in any fashion, despite what they might proclaim. In societal terms, the woke mob seeks to destabilize the country by creating chaos. Then one thing. Once things are busted up, they'll attempt to insert their insane policies into the culture to transform it into the paradise that they are seeking i love that analogy that the woke mob is like a swarm of piranhas um but just ask
3: jordan peterson yes recently when he said that i took the i took the jab so that they would leave me alone and they didn't leave me alone yeah that's what happens you never take the knee exactly never apologize never take the
1: knee that's right. That's right. But, but as you point out, though, the, I guess the good point is that they, once they're finished, they're like mad dogs. They Once they finish attacking you, when there's no one else to attack, they attack each other, and ultimately they devour themselves. What stage are we in? Because we are starting to see these, uh, these civil wars within certain groups. So, for example, now, um, within the um, LGBTQ uh, plus or whatever the acronym is up to now, I'm not sure. But uh, now you've got, um, uh, you know, once you had radical feminists that were aligned uh, with these groups and now the radical feminists are concerned about, you know, women only spaces and you have uh, trans activists that want, you know, transgendered uh, biological males who identify as women to compete in women's sports You've got uh, they want to be you know allowed into uh, rape uh, um, shelters or uh, rape counseling or domestic uh, abuse shelters uh, into women's prisons. So now you've got this fissure happening. You've got these civil wars popping up all you know among this once homogenous, you know group that they all kind of hung together. Now they're slowly breaking up. They're fighting. There's a lot of infighting.
3: I think the people in that. Community that were actually marginalized by society for years and years and years, the the trans community that was a very small segment, very small uh, trans community, who you know for whatever reason they were born in the wrong body, they have multi, you know both sex organs or something it 's got to be a tremendously difficult existence of high course. school college meeting other what kind of relationships do i have with it i can't even imagine i wouldn't i wouldn't pretend to know what they're going through and most of my frustration isn't actually directed at those people those people are doing the best with the situation that they currently have but i think they're tired of the other people uh Coming in and watering down their righteous uh, frustration with with the system, or, or 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 with their push to grant them, you know, to to gain additional rights for the trans community. That we need to take care of the people that are in a, that are in, you know that need it. We do right. need
1: to do that, they, but they're the, deserving of respect and protection. They need to be
3: course, absolutely, absolutely of course. But when you come out and say that you're. Can sexual for breakfast, and you're gender fluid at lunch, and you're non-binary at dinner. People are going to laugh at you, and rightly so, because what you're doing is you're pretending that you're all of these things. And and to that trans person who's actually fighting this fight and has. The anxiety every day of which bathroom do I go – do I look enough like a woman to go into this? I mean it's got to be really frustrating. And then to see all of these other people that don't really have much of an excuse to be this up in arms the way they are, I think it's insulting. I think the trans community that sees that is, is insulted by it. The gay community has ditched these people a long time ago. They want nothing to do with them. So it's, it's an interesting – it's interesting to see that it's not a it, it's it's there's no solidarity in the woke community. I mean, we're watching uh, th- three shot people turn on the two shot people now, right? Yes, you know, so, yes. Like, it's the it's the vaccine caste system, <laughs> right? <laughs> it is, and so what? The thing is, it's like if you wanted fairness and equality for everyone. I'll listen, but that's not what they want. They want retribution, and they want punishment, and they want they want to be taken. They want they don't want equality. They want to be prioritized. And people see that, and they go, "This isn't about fairness. This is about you wanting yours." And so it's it's not a it's not a it's not an ideology that's going to last, uh, for much longer. And when you have 56 different genders that you can pick from on Facebook, it's, it's rightly going to be mocked, you know? So, so it's, it's, you're in a weird spot where it's like, you want to, you know, you you need to kind of goof on these people because they're, they're not serious people, but also you, you recognize that by doing that, there are going to be some serious people in that group that unfortunately are going to go down with the ship because, um, because the uh, you know they they do need our protection they do need you know people to be reminded to to not be awful to them but uh but that's you're you're not the, the woke mob is not helping the cause they're they're doing what they they're doing what they do which is they're really good at getting uh publicity but uh, there's not much substance behind it. So I want you just sort of pick at it a little bit. You, what you realize is that these people aren't, aren't serious people.
1: Well, and it, it would appear that they, uh, that they may have overplayed their hand finally with – let's say in particular with CRT, critical race theory in the schools. And they have awoken the sleeping giant, and we're seeing evidence of that, of course, a couple of Tuesdays ago with the uh, – the election in a very deep blue state like virginia now uh republican governor and uh, and and they are crediting parents it's not about democrat and republican anymore you've you've awoken the uh, the sleeping giant of parents that's a pretty oh, I,
3: big i think you mean domestic terrorist richard i think you mean
1: domestic <laughs> terrorists sorry <laughs> there you go hypocrisy surviving in a world of cultural double standards uh, charlie great speaking with you terrific book Love the cover as well. And uh, once again, how do we get a copy?
3: You can find my book on Amazon in paperback and as a Kindle. You can find the digital version. If you want to bypass Amazon and come to me directly, you can do so at the website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. Just donate $10 or more in PayPal. I'll send you the book. So Fantastic. And what are you working on next? Oh, boy. I really want to turn The Octopus into an eight-part television series. So I'm talking to people about that. Wow. Fantastic! And
1: how do we listen to the podcast? Mac- macroaggressions.
3: Oh. oh, macroaggressions is available in audio format wherever podcasts are served, and in video format, you can find it on David Ike's platform, Iconic. It's over on Rockfin, Odyssey, and depending on the guest, sometimes on YouTube.
1: All right, Charlie. Great speaking with you again. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you, Richard. Charlie Robinson. All right. Back next week with Jim D. Eugenio, the 58th anniversary of JFK. Thanks to uh, Carlos and Ryan. Couldn't do it without you boys. Thank you so much. Uh, back next week, as I say. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.